0: If you have your Bibles uh, with you, I invite you to join me back in 2 Corinthians. Uh, We'll be in chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, we'd encourage you to bring them. We're going to be in them every single week uh, looking and studying together. Uh, But we do have Bibles here for your use in front of you. Uh, It's those black Bibles, and I'd encourage you to open up to our passage together as we study together. Uh, If you need some help finding the passage in those Bibles, the page that it can be found is 911. Um, We took a break from studying this uh, letter to the Corinthian church so that we could appropriately give our time and attention to the Christmas season. Uh, But now uh, we turn back right where we left off, uh, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, I'll start reading from verse 16, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. And so please do uh, follow along as I read. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, under your sovereign hand, we are now gathered together in such a time and in such a place with the express purpose of praising you and your mighty work. And now we open up a mighty work of yours, your written word, which reveals your character and your nature. Lord, your written word is a treasure trove. And now as we enter into it, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal the beautiful gold that is to be found within these pages? It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Right around the year uh, 10 AD to 1480, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, wrote a famous work of antiquity. It's called the Res Gustai Divi Augusti. Augusti. Uh, it's essentially his autobiography um and it gives a first account of his, a first person account of his own life and his own accomplishments as emperor and it reads very much like a eulogy would at a funeral uh, except for augustus is the one re- writing his own eulogy um this writing was actually engraved on two columns right outside of the mausoleum of augustus uh augustus he was the first emperor of the colossal roman empire and during his 40-year reign, he led the empire to major prominence on the world stage. And at the end of his life, he wanted to ensure that the world knew of his importance and of his significance, which is why he wrote the Res Gestae. And so it's not hard to believe that his entire autobiography just reeks of boastful self-admiration and arrogance. Listen to a small excerpt from Augustus' writing. This comes from the fourth paragraph. Caesar Augustus writes, I celebrated two ovations and three curule triumphs, and I was 21 times saluted as imperator. The Senate decreed still more triumphs to me, all of which I declined. I laid the bay leaves with which my fasces were wreathed in the Capitol after fulfilling all the vows which I had made in each war. On 55 occasions, the Senate decreed that thanksgivings should be offered to the immortal gods on account of the successes on land and sea gained by me or by my legates acting under my auspices." the day on which thanksgivings were offered in accordance with decrees of the Senate, numbered 890. In my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. At the time of writing, I have been consul 13 times and am in the 37th year of tribunation power. It was not uncommon in this culture for such boasting Uh, to occur not just even from an emperor, but all the way down to an ordinary citizen. This was the culture of the time, right? That that You had to be arrogant, that you had to boast, that everybody had to know how good you were. However, this was a behavior that the Apostle Paul absolutely loathed. He he hated it because he recognized um, that any achievements or any accomplishments, or any accolades, he would write, were all worthless. It was, it was worthless in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, which made boasting about such things, such fleshly human accomplishments, quite a ridiculous practice. Right? Paul would call it foolishness. He'd say it's unwise boast about yourself, because it made you look like a fool. Yet here in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is forced into a rather awkward situation in regards to this. If you remember the context of 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that has been influenced by false teachers. The last time that we were in 2 Corinthians, way back in November, At the beginning of chapter 11, Paul explains that he is like a spiritual father to the Corinthian church, and he has presented them to Christ. He has pledged them to be married, right, as a bride of Christ. Yet these other false teachers have come in, and they are seducing the Corinthian church away from their groom. And one of the tactics that these false teachers have used in the seduction process is undercutting Paul's authority as an apostle. They themselves have boasted at great length about their own credentials, right? And how good they are and how many wonderful spiritual experiences and successes that they've had. And they go to the Corinthians and they say, look at all the wonderful, majestic things that we've done. Look at all of our ministry successes. And what has Paul ever done? What is Paul good for? And so the situation is so dire that Paul is about to do the unthinkable. Right? We would say that desperate times call for desperate measures. And Paul is so desperate to win the attention back from the Corinthians. And he knows what's at stake, that he realizes that he has to engage in a little bit of foolishness. That he has to do what he absolutely hates, which is boast in his own credentials. You can almost hear in the opening verses the grumbling thoughts ringing through Paul's head in the text as he just kind of bemoans this idea of boasting. But you can feel him say, I, I can't believe I'm going to do this. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Ugh. Those guys are fools. And I have to stoop to their level. This is just so uncomfortable for the Apostle Paul. And he's so disgusted at the situation that the first several verses, really 16 through um, like the beginning of 21, he actually seems to share a disclaimer of sorts before he begins. But he recognizes, I'm going to do this, but I need to lay some things out there for you guys before I enter in this. Here's my disclaimer. And it starts in verse 16. I repeat, he's already said it once, all the way back in verse 1 of 11. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. Please don't think of me as a fool, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. Even though I'm about to participate in this ridiculous charade, please, please don't think I'm a fool. It's important to note here that the term for fool here, it's not some, it's not necessarily somebody who is what we would call stupid or dumb, right, as we might understand it, but a fool in Paul's eyes, it is a, it's an unwise person who has a radically skewed self-perception, right? It's somebody with just zero emotional intelligence. It's someone who just hasn't the slightest clue about who they really are. And so Paul says, please don't take me as a fool, even though I'm going to do this. Um, But then he even reasons that if they do, it's okay, because then they will listen to his boast like they do the other false teachers. Even though he doesn't want to be thought a fool, he feels as though he's been forced into this pit of foolishness to draw the Corinthians out of foolishness for some reason in my preparation, as I was reading this and studying the text, the idea of a circus came to mind. And Paul uh here is dealing with a bunch of clowns, right? They don't know they're clowns, but he knows they're clowns. And, and Paul's saying, this is ridiculous. I'm going to put the clown makeup on. I'm going to make myself look like the clown. And, and, and he's saying, I'm not really a clown, but like these other clowns, but even if I have to appear like a clown, at least I'll get your attention. I'll have you as, as as an audience. And so I'll do it. It's the first part of the disclaimer. And then he continues in his disclaimer in verse 17. Take a look at it. What I am saying with this boast uh, with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. In other words, Paul is about to engage in something that God would not have him do. He's saying, this isn't of God, this is of the flesh. I'll buy it painfully, Paul is about to elevate himself, and he wants to make it perfectly clear to the Corinthians in this moment that he speaks according to not what God would desire, but according to what his own flesh would desire. He's basically saying, don't follow my pattern here, because this isn't of God, this is of the flesh. He doesn't want them to get the idea that boasting in the flesh is okay to elevate yourself. Yet once again, Paul feels it necessary in this situation. He feels forced into it because these other guys are boasting. That's verse 18. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Uh, What we will find, however, is that Paul's boast is radically different than the boast of these other guys. His boast is different. Um, Before we get there, though, in the final section of Paul's disclaimer, in verses 19 through 21, we see why he feels that it's necessary. Because we actually see the devastating gravity of the situation at hand about what's actually happening in the Corinthian church. And he he actually takes a shot at the Corinthians here um, with what's been called biting sarcasm. Right, Paul basically says, if I must play the fool... That won't be a problem with, with you guys. This shouldn't be too hard for you to accept because verse 19, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. All right? Since you guys think you're so smart, you guys are so wise and you accept others who boast, you won't mind putting up with mine. And, and oh, how wise you are, how brilliant you are to put up with them. And here's the situation as they make slaves of, of you, they entrap you. As they devour you, or in other words, use up all of your resources. As they take advantage of you, as they lord themselves over you. They they put on air, they've elevated themselves, they've lorded themselves over them. As they strike you in the face, or in other words, as they humiliate you. You guys are so smart. Paul says, I I wasn't even that. I'm too weak to do that. I, I wasn't smart enough to do that. The the overall picture here painted, the portrait painted here is just appalling. These men are straight up exploiting the Corinthians for personal gain. This was an abusive relationship in which Paul is trying to rescue them from, which is why he's willing to play the fool for a moment if that is what it's going to take. And so with all that being said, with the full disclaimer out there about why Paul is going to do what he does, he finally gets around to boasting about himself in verse 22. It took him all of chapter 11 to get to this point, the the first 22 verses in chapter 11 to get to this point. And we get the sense that Paul has just kind of been putting it off as long as he possibly can, and he finally arrives. When uh, employers are looking to hire employees, there's two things that they look for primarily, and it's background and accomplishments. Background and accomplishments. They want to know where you come from and what you've done. Where are you from? What school did you go to? Where did you grow up? What other businesses have you worked up? What has your upbringing looked like? What things from your past have shaped who you are today? And so this is where Paul starts. And Paul, in this first section, when he talks about his background, matches his opponents point for point. There's nothing that they can say that that, that he isn't himself, right? He, He gets into it with three questions. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham or literally the seed of Abraham? So am I. These three questions that Paul poses, it's actually a reference to his ethnic identity. It's a, a, his religious identity, right? To say that he is both, all of those, a Hebrew and an Israelite, and a descendant of Abraham means that he has this racial purity as a Jewish man that not many Jewish people could actually lay claim to. And he is saying, I am a full-blooded Jew. Both of my parents are Jewish. And I am a Jew of Judean descent, as opposed to Jews who were born from people coming from areas far from Judea. As Paul puts it in Philippians 3, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. You cannot get any more Jewish than Paul. And so these other guys, there's a very good chance, because Paul mentions it, that they uh, perhaps challenged his Jewish pedigree Paul comes out and says, if ethnic heritage qualifies someone to be an apostle and a messenger of Christ, I've got it. Everything that can be said of their background, I have it as well. And then Paul closes in on a fourth and final question and gives quite a bold answer. There's a shift. Are they servants of Christ? These guys claim to be servants of Christ. Well, guess what? I am a better one. And then he reflects on how much he sounds like a madman, right? We can appreciate that, right? Because nobody would be walking around here through the hallways on a Sunday morning, going around people saying, I'm a better servant of Christ than you. Nobody does that. Paul recognizes the ludicrousy of that, but he says, I am a better servant of Christ. Now, all of those other things that he just mentioned about his heritage and his background, those are all objective. That's black and white. You either are or you are not. But a servant of Christ. Well, now that's subjective. There's room for debate, right? They, they may all be on equal ground when it comes to their Jewish pedigree, but when it comes to the claims of being a servant of Christ, Paul makes it very clear subjectively that these guys cannot hold a candle to him. And here is the proof. And And, and Paul supports that claim by what he writes next, all the way from verse 21 through verse 29. Now, this is the part of Paul's resume where he shifts from his background to his accomplishments, right? And as Paul comes toe-to-toe with these other guys who have already bragged about their glorious achievements in life, we wouldn't question Paul for a second if he began listing out all of the successes of, of his ministry, But He's trying to convince them that he's a better servant of a Christ, that he's been more successful. And so it would come... It's no surprise to us if Paul then wrote to them, hey, guess what? I have preached the gospel to more people than anybody. And I have led more people to Christ than anyone. And I have planted more churches than anyone. And I have traveled more miles and I have raised more money. And oh, by the way, I've, raised, uh, I've written more books than anybody. Look at all the great accomplishments I've done. And it wouldn't come as a surprise to us if Paul said, oh no, by the way, I've been at this work for more than two decades. I've got 20 plus years of experience at this point. You guys are bush league compared to me. No one would discredit Paul if he said that. But shockingly, Paul doesn't support his authenticity as a servant of Christ by pointing to his proud moments but instead by pointing to his humiliating moments. He offers a list of accomplishments, but they look much different, right? A a list of accomplishments that focus on his human frailty, on his weakness. Instead of picking the things that would make him look really strong in the eyes of others, he picks and turns to what makes him look weak. Let's walk through them together. He, He starts his list of accolades with physical hardships, with with some general statements about how he's had greater labors. He says, I've been thrown in prison a bunch of times on multiple occasions. I've been beaten so many times that I can't even count. And many of those occasions uh, were near-death experiences. I've beaten, been beaten so many times I can't count. But then he gets specific about some of the punishments. There are some things I can count, Paul says. Uh, punishments that I was on the receiving end on five different times. He experienced the 40 lashes less one to this point. Um, that's in reference to the Jewish form of punishment, which was the most severe beating allowed by Jewish law. All right? According to the Jewish law, you, you you couldn't strike someone more than 40 lashes uh, that was appropriate for a physical punishment. And so the Jews did what was called the 40 less one because they were afraid of accidentally breaking the law if they had miscounted. And so they would only do 39. And they would whip criminals using a braided leather that branched out into three different strands. And oftentimes at the end of these strands uh, were tied um, fragments of bone or fragments of metal And the the weapon was designed to actually rip the skin off of you. It was a punishment uh, so brutal that some people didn't even survive. Yet Paul endured five of these beatings. Um, Three times he was beaten with rods, which on the other hand is a Roman form of punishment. Once he was stoned, you can read all about that in Acts 14. Typically, stoning always led to death. The only reason the mob relented in Acts 14 was because they actually thought Paul was dead. They thought they had finished the job. These beatings are a testimony that he is a better servant of Christ than these other guys. And you know what? You wouldn't even have to take his word for such occurrences, right? From where we're sitting, we we have to believe Paul. We have to take him at his word. But to the Corinthians, they wouldn't have to because all you had to do was take one, one look at his disfigured and mutilated body and you would know that he was telling the truth, right? Could you imagine the condition of Paul's body after all of these physical beatings? The massive scars all over the front of his chest and in, the, in his back. In Galatians 6, he writes, For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Literally, his body was a living monument to his suffering. Yet he considered it a trophy, recognizing him as a servant of Christ. He continues on, three times I was shipwrecked. And this doesn't even count the shipwreck that's recorded in Acts 27, if you're familiar with that one, because Second Corinthians was written before those events, so he has more shipwrecks waiting for him. Um, just so you know, in those times, maritime disasters, it was actually quite commonplace uh, because of poor navigation and fragile ships. Every time Paul stepped on a sailing vessel, there was some kind of risk involved. He was in danger, which actually leads us nicely to the next section of Paul's lists of accomplishments. And that there wasn't anywhere Paul could step that he was risk-free. He makes it clear that he was in danger from rivers that he would have to ford on his journey. He was in danger from robbers, which was always a threat when traveling in that time on foot. He was in danger from his own people who were the Jewish people. He was in danger from the Gentiles, who are the non-Jewish people. So he says, I'm in danger where, wherever I go. There's not, there is no people group that I'm safe with right now. He is danger in the city geographically, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from people who claim to be Christ followers and were not. The section is meant to communicate that there is nowhere Paul can turn to in his travels where he is not in some kind of imminent danger. There was no safe place. And there were no groups of people that he was safe with. Verse 27, he experienced toil and hardship and sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure to the elements. Then in verse 28, this is great, take a look at it. And apart from other things. In other words, Paul's saying, "I could." the list goes on. I, I could keep going. There's there's been many other things. I'll go ahead and stop, though, because I've made my point. Apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Here, Paul shifts from hardships that were external and hardships that were occasional to a burden that is internal and daily. The picture that we get here is that Paul is just being smothered under a blanket of anxiety on a daily basis. And it's pretty remarkable here that Paul would associate and equate his physical suffering with the mental anguish that he experiences. It's on the same page. Paul's saying that these mental battles that I experience every day, this anxiety is up there with the worst of the physical suffering that I've had to endure. And many commentators argue that the way Paul writes this indicates that Paul considered the emotional and mental burden for the churches as a worse kind of suffering than the physical suffering. gets into it a little bit. We see his pastoral heart in verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak. In other words, if you are struggling or if you are in pain, if you are experiencing the frailty of life, I, Paul, share that weakness with you. Your tears are my tears. Your weakness is my weakness. My heart breaks for you. And he continues, who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. The word indignant literally means to burn. So what he's saying is, if somebody leads you into sin, if you have fallen into sin, if you are made to fall, my heart just burns for you. I am engulfed in flames to see you fall. It hurts. When I see you give over yourself over to the flesh, it burns. This entire list that we walk through, it's a portrait of life which overflows with perpetual, unmeasurable suffering and weakness. What a resume. As I mentioned earlier, what an odd thing to do. Right, He had every opportunity to list out all of his great accomplishments and successes to put these false teachers in their place, but instead he shares of his weakness. He shares of his human frailty. Why would Paul do this? That's bizarre. Well, it's because Paul is deliberately making a point. And he drives home that point in verse 30. If I must boast, if I must play the fool, if I have to put on the clown makeup, then I am going to boast in a way that looks foolish, to you, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. In the first century, this was radically countercultural. They would have read this and been shocked. What do you mean, Paul? You're going to boast in your weakness and the things that make you look little? That, that, that is an absurd claim, Paul. It was so absurd that Paul actually feels the need to include verse 31, where he makes an oath. Paul, that's crazy talk. You can't possibly desire to boast in your weakness. And Paul says, hey, the God of the Father and Father of the Lord Jesus, who knows all things, who sees all things, who's blessed forever, for all eternity, he knows that I'm not. Lying, I know that it sounds crazy, but it's true. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. Right? Paul takes everything that Emperor Caesar Augustus says in the Res Gestae, which I read from earlier, and Paul takes that and it turns it on its he turns it on its head. Right? If Caesar Augustus is the cultural Poster child for boasting in strengths. Paul wants it to be known, perfectly clear, that he is the polar opposite. And if Paul was somehow transported to our time, he wouldn't find much difference. Because this was not just radically countercultural in the first century, but it is also radically countercultural in the 21st century. Because we are a success, obsessed culture, which is drunk on strength and pride and accomplishments and winning. We glory and revel in power and honor, and we are disgracefully embarrassed by the weak and the lowly and the broken things of the world. Right, We have athletes who declare that they're the GOAT, the greatest of all time. We have politicians who refuse to exhibit even a minuscule ounce of vulnerability because, heaven forbid, that they appear weak even for just a moment. And unfortunately, this doesn't escape the culture of ministry at times. Because there are many churches and ministries who are, that are led by those who strong-arm their way into leadership under the guise of ministry calling. And they strong-arm their way into what they would define as ministry success. And then they are praised for it. Too many churches are caught in the snare of what we would define successful. Under such influence of our culture and our prideful sin, we often, what happens in relation to our weakness personally, is that we despise and despair our own personal weaknesses. Right? Right? We view them as a shameful part of our life and and we try and shovel them away into the dark recesses of our heart and put them into a corner and then cover them up because we don't want anybody to see them. And worst of all, we don't want to come face to face with the reality that I am weak. So if I just tuck it away and I cover it up and I push it further deep down, I will never have to face the reality of my delicate frailty. Yet Paul, categorically rejects this practice. And he says, if I must bo- boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. I will not tuck them away so that no one can see them, including myself. Instead, I will proudly put them on display for the world to see. And what Paul teaches us is that we ought not to despise our weaknesses, but actually delight in our weaknesses. We should embrace them. Instead of hopelessly avoiding them, we should lean into them. And here's the reason, because when we don't delight in our weakness, when we only boast in the flesh, it actually taints the message of the gospel. We'll get into this more next week, um, but it's important to note that this week, that as Christ followers, when we boast in the flesh and disregard our weaknesses as if it's not there, we actually lose something of the gospel message. Uh, Our boast in the flesh and the despair of our weakness poisons the proclamation of the good news of Jesus because Jesus was a man of weakness. He was a man of sorrows. And we're weak because we're human, because we're frail, because of sin's dark curse. But Jesus had a choice. He chose to be weak. He emptied himself of the appearance of power, it says. He took on the weak form of a servant. So much so that he submitted himself to death on a cross. And then he called on those who believed in him to follow him into the grave. Don't you see the call to follow Christ is a call to weakness? That our very identity in Christ should take on the posture of humble weakness. It goes with the territory of walking with Christ. And Paul knew this to be true. From the very beginning of his ministry, he knew this to be true, which is why he shares a story in verses 32 to 33, our final verses, right? He he recounts an event from nearly 20 years prior when he was let down in possibly a fish basket through a window in the walls of Damascus in the middle of the night to escape people who were seeking to kill him. Damascus, it's an important mile marker in the life and ministry of Paul and these final verses are included here to, to cause our minds to think through the significance of Damascus and Paul's life. The whole story can be found in Acts chapter 9. I'd encourage you to go and read it on your own time, but I'll summarize it for you now. Um, before, Christ was a serv- before Paul was a servant of Christ, he was actually a ruthless opponent of Christ. And he made it his life goal to pursue Christ's followers and persecute them and have them arrested and potentially even put to death. And so on one occasion, with permission from the high priest, the Jewish high priest, Paul is traveling to Damascus to pursue believers when in a brilliant flash of light, Paul experiences and hears the voice of Jesus Christ himself, And at that moment, Paul moved from being an opponent of Christ to a follower of Christ. Now in Damascus, waiting for Paul, there was another Christ follower named Ananias, who the Lord had enlisted to help Paul in the first several days of Paul's Christian journey. And when the Lord had recruited Ananias to this task, God told Ananias, that Paul was a chosen instrument of his to carry his name before all the world. God's telling Ananias, Paul is going to be a messenger of Jesus. He's going to tell the world about who I am. And Paul will see how much he will suffer for the sake of the Lord's name. He's going to be a messenger of God. He's going to be an apostle of Christ. And he's going to suffer a lot when he doesn't. After reading through Paul's list of hardship here, we see that God was not bluffing. And we see through this that weakness is attached to Paul's calling in Christ. Paul's calling as a messenger in Christ was birthed in weakness. And we see this wonderful beautiful picture of two different men, Paul, as two different men, one who didn't know Christ and one who did know Christ. We see this beautiful illustration in Acts 9 in a, in a stark contrast between Paul entering the city of Damascus and, and how he left the city of Damascus. Paul approached Damascus as a proud, arrogant man, carrying an immense amount of worldly power and worldly authority. He traveled into the city with confidence in broad daylight, accompanied by an entourage of men. But then he met King Jesus. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And as Paul made his exit from the city of Damascus, he left as a humbled man with no worldly authority and no worldly power running for his life pursued by those who wish to have him dead. And he left in quiet obscurity in the middle of the night, all alone in a basket of all things. You see, there is an eternal difference between the proud man who does not know Jesus and walks in foolishness and the humbled man who does know Jesus and walks in the footsteps of Christ. Jesus humbles the proud and then invites them into weakness and in embracing their weakness. And what we will find next week in part two is that he does this so that God's power and glory may be known and may be felt that true power, the truest power that you could ever know is only found in our weakness. So let's not despair, but delight in our weakness and consider it an occasion for great joy. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, for this we give you praise, the, the truth of your word. I pray, Father, um, that those of us who are have come face to face with our humanity in ways that we would never wish to have come, um, that you would show your power and that you would show your glory, Father, and that we would see the role of weakness in our life. And I pray, Father, that we would not boast in our own accomplishments in our own flesh that are worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, but that we would actually lean into our weaknesses and embrace them for the role that they play in our life, Father. I thank you for Jesus who submitted to weakness, who became weak so that all who believe in him would be saved. For that we praise you, and it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.